tell you a story about our community, which seems an odd thing to do because today is Palm Sunday, and usually Palm Sunday is a time reserved for pageantry. If you grew up in church, you maybe have in your mind that it's a time for family and fun and where the kids uh, wave the palm branches. Or maybe if you grew up in church, you have in mind that this is a time of solemn ceremony where you're preparing to go into uh, Good Friday and, uh, and Black Sabbath and preparing for the Easter. Um, but what we're going to do together today is talk about... Um, what has happened in our community? In my mind, I thought, yeah, you know what, you just can't do that on Palm Sunday until I started thinking about what Palm Sunday is. And we're kind of an unusual church in the sense that we are always rethinking uh, our narrative, rethinking our practices. So just a skosh of rethinking before we begin to justify me doing this today. <laughs> Here it is. <clears throat> the first Palm Sunday wasn't about any of the things that we think we associate with Palm Sunday now. It wasn't about uh, kids and palms. It wasn't about fun and family. It wasn't about uh, solemn or ceremony. Uh, it was an act of resistance. It was actually an act of agitation. It was trying to provoke a crisis in a moment in history. Uh, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. We just read that. Which seems like an act of humility, we think medieval friars in, in uh, movies we've seen, we think Sancho Panza, we think Don Quixote, we think humble, meek, mild. But at the time, riding into town on a donkey was a symbolic form of confrontation. Jesus was evoking the, the status and the station of King David, who had been the champion of the nation of Israel in all those times when there had been oppression, he had been the one most effective at setting us free from that oppression. So what Jesus was saying with his actions riding into town on a donkey was, this Messiah label that you keep assigning me, I accept. In other words, yes. We are going to challenge, we are going to confront, that's what messiahs do. We will unseat this occupation of Rome. We will unseat this Jewish puppet collaborator government. We will bring down our oppressors. Again, it's what messiahs do. But we'll do it with a twist. Jesus had spent a lot of time and energy upending people's narratives, uh, upsetting people's expectations. And the primary way that he upset people's expectations around that term Messiah was we are not going to throw off the yoke of oppression using violence. We've tried that. Generation after generation, we've tried that. It turns out, having learned by trying, that if you live by the sword, you're going to end up dying by the sword. So even if we win that way, all we're going to do is perpetuate the violence for another hundred years. The cycle will continue. So we're going to change the world, but we're going to do it in a very much, in a much more difficult way, the long way, the spiritual way. We're going to provoke a crisis. That's what Palm Sunday was about, was provoking a crisis in order to use the, the aftermath of that to call the collaborators back to the love of God and to neighbor that they have abandoned. We're going to provoke a crisis 
so that in the aftermath of the crisis, we can call Rome uh, away from this role of oppression. We're going to do that primarily by undercutting their ability to rule a nation so far from the epicenter of power because we're going to mobilize ourselves in uh, a unified posture of nonviolent resistance. So Palm Sunday was about provoking change. It was about discerning a moment in history and responding with an appropriate strategy, about setting right what was wrong, about restoring what had been lost. So that gives me a little bit of justification for what we're going to do today on Palm Sunday, because what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about how you, our community, have fulfilled the spirit of this day discerning a moment in history, and then responding with a healing strategy. Now, I know a lot of folks in our community can't be here today, so uh, this is going to be an important thing that we're going to talk about and put out on the recording. So if you would, to the folks who aren't here, say, good morning. morning. Come on, they can't hear. It's in the microphone right here. Good morning. 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 All right. So let me start by commending you. Well done. Now, if there's anything that ministers love to do, it's to take credit for the good things that happen in a community, and I'm not opposed to that. And to be fair, some of the credit could go to me. I did some work to get us here, some vision-setting work. I did some gathering people work. I did some best practice learning work, and then some best practice teaching work. And so, yes, I could get some of the credit. The problem with telling the story that way is I have had some experience along the way, and that story just really doesn't hold water. The work that I did as the minister of the church uh, that got us to the things we're going to celebrate today, I've done them before. I've done them lots and lots and lots of times before, and they have been for naught. Uh, I have studied best practices before. I have discerned uh, how to move forward before, and I have taught people what I have learned, and I've gathered people to work. I've done that, only to look up a month later or a year later, and nothing. Nothing came, nothing stayed. So I'm pretty much dead convinced that the work that I did to get us here today is not the variable that mattered. What I did today isn't what brought about what we celebrate today. I've got vision. I've got vision of plenty. I really debated whether I was going to write this down and say it with the recording going, but I'm going to. I was kind of upset in a council meeting several years ago uh, about my frustration about things not unfolding, and I actually said these words. I said, I piss on vision. (laughs) Vision is useless. Knowing best practices, it is worthless. Knowing where we need to go from here, empty. Unless we can bring these things to be, it doesn't matter how clearly we can see the future. Well, the things that we are going to celebrate today... Uh, can't be done by the leader of a community, can't be done by a minister. They have to be owned and operated by the community. So today's well done goes to you, uh, owning and operating a healthy spiritual community. I'm also imagining in the back of my head some folks thinking, well now, hey, I didn't do that much. And to you, I would like to say this. There was a lot of hands-on work that has brought us to where we are today, and that is true. Mostly they were small jobs, lots of lots of small jobs, lots of people doing small jobs. 
But even if you didn't take one of those small jobs, there was another important thing that happened in our community that you participated in, and that was the absorption of change. And that is no small thing, the absorption of change, external change, internal change. And here's what you did. You did not exit the process. It would not have been uncommon for us to go through what we've gone through the last two years and uh, run for the exit door. The community, NRCC, invites an uncommon level of transparency. We do that. Our community tends to upend church norms. We do that. Our language tends to undo all the things that are familiar about church. And so it is not uncommon for people to have a a startle response when they first experience NRCC. Unsettled feelings are not all that uncommon because we're rethinking some really hardwired instincts about God and about humanity and about sin and about salvation. We're rethinking some hardwired instincts about those damn Democrats or those damn Republicans or about black people or about white people or about brown people. And we're not shying away from those things. We're going at those things and we're processing them together. And it's not always pretty and it doesn't always go well. And all the things that are going on that are on the periphery of these things, they still go on. And yet we keep soldiering forward and we keep moving into that. So by pushing up against the these instincts by making ourselves pry open our minds, it's not uncommon for folks to say, what? And the thing is, you didn't leave. We created that environment and you're still here. Now maybe you just haven't got the whole story yet, you don't know all the stuff that we're doing that's so crazy, <laughs> but, but I suspect that you would have eyes wide open to what we're doing and you stayed. Now. For many of us, when the idea flashed through our minds, oh my God, this is corrupting the true Christian faith. Or when the idea uh, passed through our minds, whoa, 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 this is way, way, way too Christian. Or this is too liberal. Or this is too conservative. Or this is too touchy-touch or closey-close. Or this is too focused on social justice or whatever. You didn't run. And I just have to say, that is no small thing. Now I hear a lot from folks in our community that, you know, Doug, I haven't done that self-awareness, self-disclosure worksheet yet, or I haven't participated in conflict resolution, or I haven't started meditating yet, or I haven't got my head around this Enneagram thing, or I didn't go to this meeting, or I didn't go to that. And so when I hear that, it's not uncommon for the next word to be, but. I haven't done that stuff yet, but when I'm ready or when I get warmed up to the idea or when I have some time or whenever. And again, I just have to tell you, as someone who watches change dynamics happening in individuals and in communities, that is no small thing. I watch how change happens in people's lives very closely. And being able to stay engaged in something that is different, weird, unusual, or stretching or demanding and even though we don't jump in with both feet, if we just stay engaged, that is part of this process by which change dynamics happen. So I do want to say, well done. And if you're uh, kind of dismissing yourself from the receipt of that well done, I want to push against that and say, yeah, well done for you too. If you're a newcomer, you can be well done a few months from now. <laughs> so here's one of the things 
ways of thinking about what we did this last year. It was pretty remarkable these last couple years, really. We did what the martial arts teach people to do. We took some very harmful energy, some very negative energy, and we turned it. We took the negative energy of this moment in our national life, and we used it to advance health and well-being in our community and in the community around us. So our nation is facing a crisis, you've heard me say, the torn fabric of community. And our community knows how to restitch the torn fabric of community. It's something that we have been focused on for 20 years. We know how to do it. The problem has not been that we don't know how to do it. The problem has been that we have not had the systems in place to be able to transmit what we know effectively. We haven't been able to transmit what we know to even our whole community, but certainly not outside of our community, because that requires a level of organization you're going to hear in a moment, hasn't been our gig. But something's happened over these last two years. We not only know how to restitch the torn fabric of community, we know how to transmit what we know. Now, if you're coming to NRCC from a cold start, it's going to take some time to kind of understand all the stuff we've been working on for these last 20 years. Uh, to get a firm grip on this way we understand the spiritual journey is going to require that you work through an understanding of what is self-awareness and self-disclosure. You'll hear us use the term doing a worksheet, and that takes some time to learn how to do. You're going to hear us talk about meditation and why that helps us uh, dissociate from the false self, and that takes time in order to integrate into our lives. You're going to hear about the Enneagram that helps us kind of see the pitfalls of our different personalities and how the spiritual journey kind of uh, requires us to deal with these very specific things, and that takes time. It takes time to do all of these processes, but we've known how to do these things for a while, and we're learning how to transmit them to people effectively. Now, for a long time, even if we knew how to transmit them effectively, we didn't have people who had learned how to do it and do the transmitting, but now we do. In the year leading up to the election, there was a lot of negative energy in the year, uh, in the air, in the year since the election, year and a half since the election, even more negative energy in the air. And at that time, we appointed a post-election team, and we gave them the, assi the assignment of helping our community formulate a Christian response to that election and to this national moment. And the team took an ownership stake in that endeavor, and they went to work. And the results have been brilliant. I'll tell you a little bit more about that in a moment. Our Enneagram groups have been places where we get together to talk about our personalities using the lens of the Enneagram to look at our souls and figure out where we're falling down. And so consequently, they have had to be a very safe place, a very uh, safe environment. And after the election, all of that negative energy made them feel less safe. And so our Enneagram leaders took an ownership stake and they begin to go to work on their groups and again, the results have been brilliant. There were plenty of afflictive emotions after the election, uh, and our community care team took an ownership stake, and they went to work. They learned how to help people through the self-awareness, self-disclosure process. They learned how to do it themselves, and they learned not only how to do it, but how to help others know how to do it so that we could begin to transmit that as a core spiritual practice to our whole community. Again, the results, brilliant. 
Our conflict resolution folks, they took an ownership stake and they went to work. And in all of these, there was something that I could observe kind of because of where I sit in the community, and that is that when we needed people to help these things become, every time we turned around, somebody was saying, yes, I want to take an ownership stake in that. And that is really important. Well done. The post-election team figured early on that we couldn't do healthy community the way that we're doing it and do it on the venue of Facebook. Because these are the kinds of issues that have to be processed deeply and you can't do it by just spitting out content. And so they outlined a Facebook uh, policy. They asked me to post it. I put it. You can see it on our Facebook page now, on our group page. Uh, they are now moderators of the group to make sure that we abide by those policies. And by the way, I know that some of the folks left Facebook after all the hoopla that went on. It's now safe. You could go back. <laughs> Next, the post-election team realized that we as a society don't know how to talk about the issues that divide us. We don't know how to have conversations across the political divide, across the racial divide, across economic divides, uh, most currently about the gun control divide. We don't know how to have these kinds of conversations. And so they've discerned that talking circles would be a very helpful skill set for us to have, and so they learned to be circle keepers. And they will, over the years to come, be teaching us in small batches how to operate in that environment and how to be able to have these kinds of conversations that people don't know how to have. The post-election team also discerned relatively early on in the process that restorative justice is a perfect fit for us as a community in our role uh, of being healers of the earth. Now, you've been hearing that term lately, restorative justice. It is just what it says. In our society, punitive justice assumes that when harm has been done, when a crime has been committed, when an offense has been uh, perpetrated, that that crime is done, that harm is done to the state. And consequently, it is the state's responsibility to get vindication, and that is punishment. Restorative justice starts from a very different place and says that harm that has been done when an offense has been perpetrated is done against an individual, and against a relationship, and against a community. And so the work that happens after that has happened is to restore what has happened to the individual, restore what has happened to the relationship, and restore what has happened to the community. And that is how we got involved in Wake County Schools that you've been hearing about recently in the, the uh, facilitated dialogue to break up the school-to-prison pipeline. That's how we've gotten involved with the North Carolina Victims Assistance Network, healing the harm that is done in the contexts around uh, these in our society. And as we've been taking those things uh, under our wing and making them ours, something has happened every time we have needed people to help those things become a reality in our community, we would turn around and somebody would be saying, yes, I want to take an ownership stake in that. Now, as I said, from my vantage point in our community, I probably saw better than anyone how remarkable this transformation has been. We have effectively turned the negative energy of our national life into tools and strategies that can help us become whole ourselves and help us bring that wholeness into the world around us. We are becoming healed healers of the earth. And that is a remarkable thing. 
kind of remarkable enough that I think we could clap for it. What do you think? That is a great thing. <laughs> now, another thing that has happened is that so many people have taken ownership stakes in so many areas of our community life that we kind of stumbled backwards into something that we've avoided for a while. We stumbled backwards into organization. Now, if you attended the newcomer lunch sometime, you would have heard Michelle say something along the lines of, you know, for years we have resisted organized religion. That was because organized religion hurt us. Uh, We didn't know exactly what the source of that hurt was. We just knew that by being part of organized religion, we were somehow diminished, we were somehow wounded. And because we didn't know exactly what the source was, we didn't know anything about the core narrative of religion like we understand now. We didn't know anything about the corrupted practices that we kind of understand now. We didn't know about the instincts, how the narrative informs the instincts and instincts inform the practices. We didn't know any of that stuff that we know now. We just were very suspicious of organized religion. And not knowing what the problem was, we wondered if maybe the problem was the organized part. Uh, So we resisted being organized. (laughs) We were the unorganized church for a long, long time. But now what has happened is all of this ownership taking and tapping into all of the negative energy and turning it into something, this has invited us into a series of healing and transforming practices. And in the process, we kind of stumbled backwards into a healthy version of being organized, a healthy version of us. I'm sorry to say these words, here it comes, healthy version of organized religion. <laughs> a long time ago I read a book by Brian McLaren uh, and the term stuck, I'm sure I don't have it right, but he said, let's quit defending organized religion. Instead, let's organize religion for the common good. And that struck me and I thought, ah, that's something that we can live with. Because it turns out, organized is kind of helpful. <laughs> I know from having been the not organized church, yeah, organized, it's good. There's something good about that. And in a sense, that is kind of what informs me saying, well done, because you've done that. Because you've taken an ownership stake in so many things, we have organized our religion to serve the common good. We have organized our religion to serve our own spiritual health and well-being, and we have organized our religion for the common good outside of ourselves. We've organized to work the circle effectively and to transmit how we do it. We've organized how to integrate the spiritual journey's transformative power into our daily lives. And we've organized ourselves to go out into the world that we are creating a little bit each day and bring the light and life of the spiritual journey to that. It's been a remarkable kind of thing for a community to do in the midst of all of the tumult and all of the ugly that has been going on in our society. And it really is cause for celebration and cause for me to say to you, well done. And by the way, that quote came from John Pavlovitz. And so... Now you've also heard me say during the announcements uh, that while we have been hard at work on these things, there have been a couple of things that are important things that we have neglected. 
And I think we can be forgiven. We did so much, but we neglected a couple of important things. We neglected one of the basics, which is time together to start building community with one another. So things like potlucks and picnics and lobby events, those kind of fell off the radar. Spaces where community gets started and those kinds of things, that just we just didn't get to those things. We neglected that. We also neglected our teenagers. Uh, as John's writing role started stretching him too thin, we uh, broke one of our cardinal rules, and that is we depended so heavily on Chris Thompson because Chris really loves our teenagers that the cardinal sin we committed was that if we didn't burn Chris out, we at least singed him badly. <laughs> so both of those things are on our to-do list for extra attention this year. And as uh, I have been working on that, and as Julie has been working on that, as the staff has been working toward those things already, every time we realize we need people to help, we turn around and somebody says, yes, I want to take an ownership stake in that. So again, good for us. You'll also remember that uh, our council was getting kind of stretched too thin by doing two roles. We were doing the work of two groups. We were both thinking about the health and well-being of the community for the next five months and the health and well-being of the community for the next five years. And so when we focused on one, it would eclipse our focus on the other, and we focused on the other, it would eclipse the one. So what we did, uh, you heard this, it was last maybe last summer I think we started, we doubled the size of the council and we broke it into two groups. And we now have a board and a staff. So that's the board right there. And uh, yeah, remind me if I haven't flipped the screen in a bit to show you the staff. <laughs> so the board is looking to the five-year health of the community. The staff is looking to the five-month both are getting their feet under them in their new role these last few months. Both are fully engaged, helping us move forward. Now, the staff just finished working on an integrated calendar, which, by the way, is kind of the thing that most normal organizations do without thinking about it. For us, this is just like radical new thinking. <laughs> it is a level of organized we hadn't been before. But what's happened is we have inserted so many soul-filling, soul-healing, uh, community-influencing things into our lives that we were starting to bump into each other. And we were starting to, our events were getting in the way of each other. So uh, we have uh, don't want any of the things that are so important to get lost in the process of a year. We also don't want to uh, have unnecessary competition for things. So that was finished uh, just recently. Also, the board is going on an overnight trip in May to work out a five, ten-year succession plan. The objective is to help NRCC avoid the founder's trap. We want there to be a healthy NRCC when our founder, yeah, that would be me, uh, is no longer leading the community. Now, I do hope to have a small role in the community until I die but we will be in trouble if I am still the leader 10 years from now. So we have to start uh, a plan now to uh, avoid the, the founder's trap, which, by the way, if you're not familiar with that, is that only 20% of uh, organizations survive their founder. Most don't. And so things have to be put in place to make sure that that happens and happens well. So we're working on that now to be ready for then. That's the work the board is doing. 
So <clears throat> many of you know Jack and Isabel Fallow. They're from the UK. They come here from time to time. I go there from time to time. And they uh, love us as a community. And Jack is kind of internationally renowned in his organizational development guru status. And so he is helping us think about our future. Uh, I think I am going to go visit uh, with him pretty soon because from where we are today, I think we can begin to formulate next step kinds of thoughts now. But one of the things that Jack tells me, tells us all the time, is that we are hiding our light under a bushel. Uh, we have discerned a viable way to be Christian in this new worldview that is upon us. We have discerned a viable way to be a Christian community in this worldview that is upon us. And if all we do is do that for ourselves, he said, we will have hidden something precious under a bushel because uh, we need to share what we've learned and what we've experienced. So on our list for the next 10 years is to be thinking about how that happens. How do we share this experience uh, with other communities to help them on their journeys? That's a lot of the impetus behind why we're working to make what we're doing transmittable. Because we've carried it around in kind of a tacit understanding of this is how the spiritual journey works, but we haven't made it explicit and we haven't made it uh, teachable. It's kind of depended upon me and then several people that I taught carrying this around in our guts and just making sure we did it this way. But to turn it into something that is transmittable to others, we need to take these principles and turn them into practices, and we've done a lot of that work these last two years. It has gone very well. Reaching out to other communities to help them on their spiritual journeys, their community journeys, is not going to be on our 2018 to-do list, but it might make it on 2019. And if that's something that you have thoughts about, I really would like to hear what you're thinking. Finally, for these 22 years, we have not talked much about money. And the reason we haven't talked about it is because church and money have informed a very toxic mix. And so we have just, being sensitive to that reality, treaded very lightly. The second reason we haven't talked about much money much is we really haven't needed all that much money. Our work and our energy was going to trying to answer these questions. What does it mean to be Christian? What does it mean to do church? Can we still do church? We were trying to dismantle all of the instincts that we'd picked up from tradition and history. And so that really doesn't mean much organizing at all. It means getting together in groups and talking. It means trying things out and then failing and then rethinking. It means a whole lot of stuff that hasn't been organizing or building much of anything. But as you've been hearing, that's beginning to change. And if we're going to give our gift away, we'll need more than we have needed in the past. And time and energy and dollars are part of how change is perpetuated, how it's brought into being. So when we start talking about money in the future differently than we have been talking about it, I want to encourage you now, please don't freak out. Uh, it is in the context of organizing for the common good. Organizing our time, organizing our energy, but also organizing our dollars. Now Scott's done a really good job of making sure that we are a streamlined organization. We do not waste your dollars. Uh, in the future, we'll be asking the community to take a financial ownership stake in the community. And if that freaks you out, really empathy. I really understand why that would freak you out, because the church and the money has been a toxic mix, and I get that. Uh, 
So I just to put you at ease, there won't be any coercion. That's never going to happen. There's not going to be any obligation. You're not going to get higher status or lower status if you give or if you don't give. That's just not, we're not going to be stupid around money. Uh, if we can't make the case by persuasion so that giving to the community is something that you want to do, you hear it from the preacher guy right now, don't give. Don't give unless this becomes something that you understand and desire and want. So we'll try and make the case that you would want to, but we won't push you. So here's the thing. If you grew up in the church, you probably heard about the tithe. Our ancient tradition teaches us to live on 90% of what we make and give 10% of our income away. To give to those who need, to give to those who are hurt, and to give to sustain our own spiritual communities. Well, <clears throat> there are developmental stages that groups go through, and that often maps onto church as well. And if you're interested, this is called spiral dynamics, but you don't need to know about this. So one of the early stages of an organization is to organize around duty. And if you're going to talk about money in a church system, and you're in that early developmental stage, you are going to emphasize duty, and there's going to be a heavy dose of it. It is your duty to God to give your money. It is your duty to the world to give your money. It is your duty to the community to give your money. And don't ask any questions, just do it. And you may have grown up in a church that that was their approach to money. It was based on the duty. And by the way, there's plenty of Bible verses out there to support this duty-bound approach to giving. And by the way, the reason those texts are there is because duty is an important part of our development as human beings. To embrace our duty to the world, to one another, this is an important part. That's why it's one of the developmental stages. It works some very healthy things into our souls. But once we move on developmentally, and if the organization that we are part of keeps banging the drum of duty, it begins to feel very heavy-handed. And the heavy-handedness begins to wound us. And at some point, we look up and say, this is hurting more than it is helping. And if that has been your experience, of course, we would, consider you to, uh, we would encourage you to consider the harm that's been done and begin to go through the healing process. But... If that's, where, is that what you, if that's what you hear when we talk about money, I'm saying don't give. Don't hear give if it sounds heavy-handed and abusive. But as you move on developmentally, we begin to be part of organizations that don't function so much around duty. We bring the duty along with us, but that becomes a secondary part, and we begin to emphasize another principle. It is the if-then principle. And so we find out, the organization does, what is the appropriate if, let's all get together and do that if so that we can enjoy the very good, the benefits of the then. If we do this thing, then this good thing will happen. Now if we take that and we begin to apply it to church and money, you might have grown up one of the churches that did that. If you grew up in that church, you would have heard, give your money because if you do, God is going to bless you. God is going to return the money to you. Uh, the benefit will accrue to you if you get, become open-hearted and generous. Jesus said as much. He said, if you give, it will be given unto you. And it is true that benefit accrues to us when we are generous and open-handed. And if that was the church that you grew up in that approached that way, at a time it would have been a perfect fit for you and it would have been a very beneficial spiritual principle. 
However, if you begin to move through the developmental stages and the group that you were card a part of kept saying, if then, if you do this, then this is going to happen, then it would have begun to feel manipulative. And it would have started to feel sleazy. And it would have started to feel like they're not really interested in my well-being. They're really just interested in me giving. They're making all these promises, but this is. And if that happened to you, I apologize. It happened to a lot of people. Uh, if that happened to you, I want to say the same thing. If you feel manipulated by church when we are talking about money, here right up front, don't give. That is not the way that we want to approach this. But duty and if then are only the beginning stages in this developmental journey. There is yet another stage to go as well. The Greek word agape is often taught as the love of God. If you grew up in church, you would have heard God's love and agape associated together. But that's not really how the Greeks used the word originally. That's how the Christian church co-opted that word and made it about God love. But it's really about the love of the elder. Agape is the love of the mature person. So this is the person who gives not for anything that is going to get them, but for what it's going to get for the other. When this developmental stage informs how we talk about money, we encourage one another to the practice of generosity, not because of our duty to God and not because of the benefits that, will afford, that they will, will afford us, even though those, as we saw, are true dynamics. But rather, we encourage one another to take up generosity because of what happens in the world when we do. What has happened in our community what happens in our families as we are part of this community? What happens on our jobs? What happens in our networks of social relationships? These things happen because folks have taken an ownership stake in the shaping of a healthy spiritual community, which means giving our time and giving our energy, and it means our dollars. Now, I believe, and I really do believe this, that what we are doing together is healing the earth. And I really do believe that the hours and the energy and the dollars that you invest here are well spent. And they do bring a return on investment in terms of health and well-being for our world. And so I do hope that you would be open-hearted and generous because it changes the world when we are. I do hope you would be fruitful and effective in terms of where your dollars go. And I do hope that you find nonprofits out there who are doing good work, that are empowering work, that is actually making change. I hope that you don't just give your dollars as a knee-jerk response to a, a heartfelt tug, but you give towards something that is effective and long-term in changing. And I hope that you give overseas, and I hope you give to nonprofits. But I do want to make the case that giving your dollars to this spiritual community is also uh, a good return on your generosity investment. Now there's another thing that goes on in our society right now and that is that fewer and fewer people understand what it costs to run a community organization. We lose that kind of insight because PBS will come and say, hey, we would like you to become a standard, would you give $10 a month? And so $10 a month uh, doesn't seem like a lot to us, but what we don't realize is that they're not a community organization. They are broadcasting to uh, a, a great swath of people, and $10 a month doesn't do it for a 
community or spiritual community. We get trained this way because Google comes along and says, we'll give you all these uh, apps for free. Facebook comes along and says, we'll give you this app for free because we know that we're going to be able to sell your data and get enough money from that. So we will we'll exact the money on the back end. We're not going to exact the money on the front end. So fewer of us understand what it costs to create a healthy spiritual community at this moment in our society and history. So if we were to break our current budget down, and remember I told you, we were running a streamlined organization, and we would divide it by the number of households in our community, it would take about $300 per month per household in order to maintain our current budget. Now, several households do practice the tithe, and they give their whole 10% to NRCC, which means that there are several households that give more than $300. But as you've seen in the budget reports as they come out every month, we just cover our budget. Uh, we have enough households who give just enough, and we cover our budget. But if we were to want to share what we had with other communities, if we were, want, if we were to want to uh, begin to consolidate and be, make what we do transmittable, we are going to need more. I mentioned last week that uh, Jared is kind of set up for failure in the way that we're paying him right now because we're buying enough of his time to free up a day a week. And it's very hard, I just know from experience, to get traction running something like our whole uh, service quadrant on a day a week. And we, uh, pay, we pay him $500 a month, which works out to be some 12, 15 bucks an hour for that. But we don't even think of it in terms of dollars per hour. We just think, how much of his time can we free up? Now, we know from experience, we even knew before we hired him that that was a difficult uh, structure for him to get any traction at, but that's all we had. We'd like to buy two days a week of Jared's time, free up two days a week. Also, you heard me mention a couple weeks ago, we're not getting very good candidates when it comes to looking for uh, someone to work with our teens and to love our teenagers. So... Again, the young people, the, the seminary kids, the people that we're asking after, they have expenses, and $500 a month really doesn't cover their expenses. And so we're hoping to uh, offer $1,000 a month for someone to work with our teens instead of 500 We don't want to burn out Julie. Uh, here's what has happened, and the role volunteer coordinator has come to mean this new definition, everything. <laughs> <laughs> everything that's going on, give it to Julie, she'll take care of it. And we run the risk of um, overburdening her and burning her out. And we run the risk of that. So we would like to get some administrative help at the church for that. So that's what's just before us right now. And that would be an additional $1,500 a month, which would be four households giving their tithe to NRCC or six if there was some percentage of the tithe. But if we were to imagine a future with influence, uh, we would actually need more of us to take a financial ownership stake in our community, more sustainers, more people who would heed the ancient wisdom of generosity and direct that generosity toward our community. So here's, I'm finished talking about money. You can unclench now. <laughs> here's the risk anytime we talk about money, and that is it's going to poke an old wound. Here's the risk that any time church brings that topic up, that it's going to be categorized in that, oh yeah, I've heard this all before and I know what this is. And I hope that doesn't happen. I hope you can see that the context in which we are celebrating what has happened this last few years and the context in which we are talking about money is really the context of organizing for the common good. 
It really is about um, being able to do better what we have done so well. And I also want to put you at ease. We are not ever going to become manipulative. We're not ever going to become heavy-handed. And I do, do hope you understand that the reason why we have treaded so lightly around money and church in the past still exists. I mean, the church is still out there doing damage around this topic of money. So I hope that's not your takeaway from today. I hope what your takeaway is, is a deep sense of accomplishment. What has happened in our community this year is remarkable. What has happened in our community has been transformative. In the context of all of the ugliness that has gone on, all that energy that went around all that ugliness has been focused toward fundamental transformation of our community. And I hope you feel affirmed. I hope you feel the sense of well done. And I also hope it will deepen your desire for taking an ownership stake in the well-being of the community as we go into the future.